Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Hello again, Joshua, and thank you for joining us to talk about the work that you and the city of Detroit are doing. Well, thank you for inviting me back, and I'm uh, happy to share uh, everything that we've been doing. Perfect. So we spoke almost exactly a year ago. We talked on August 6, 2020, and I'm looking forward to catching up on what you all have been doing since the last time we spoke. Uh, So you know, our programming theme for 2021 is the work left to do. And much of what we talked about last year with you was just sort of getting its feet under it, just getting in motion and headed in a, in a progressive direction. And so really wanted to talk about uh, the work that you all have been doing over the last year and the work that is left for you to do. So let's dive into some of those updates. Yeah. So <clears throat> when I look at uh, last year's me, I'm like, man, I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. Around August, uh, uh, we were just coming off of uh, a really nice fundraiser event through the Rock and Mortgage Classic. Um, we stood up this three and three larger ecosystem. And um, as we go back from August to December of last year, uh, we had a number of community meetings. We were standing up uh, essentially bylaws for how we were going to operate our larger community operational model. Uh, and that was something where, quite frankly, I'm reaping those benefits right now. And I'm thankful for that. It was, a, it was an arduous process. We had to tap into a lot of endurance. We had community meetings every single day. And I'm not exaggerating that. Uh, we also had largely larger monthly community meetings around standing up this larger operation on bridging the digital divide in Detroit in a sustained and coordinated fashion. And in December, we, we capped that year by um, uh, implementing what we refer to as connecting seniors. And that was an initiative where we, about 8,000 Detroit seniors, as well as their, their caregivers, received telehealth capable devices, as well as internet access, as well as technical support from a $4 million grant to the state's racial disparities task force on COVID. The reason why that's so significant is because we stood up this entity thanks to this fundraising effort um, by again, Quicken Loans' leadership through the Rocket Mortgage Classic. That was about $2 million that we started. And then we received $4 million additional dollars from the state for this telehealth thing on this side of the house. And so what you're seeing, what we're looking at is the attraction of net new resources into our ecosystem and using those resources to kind of multiply our efforts while at the same time staying very, very rigid in our scope of we need to bridge the digital divide. Uh, and so that was our December. Then obviously, you know, this year we continue to do campaigns. We just recently kicked off our Empowering Digital Detroit campaign, which is all around uh, sustainable e-waste reduction and taking electronic waste and repurposing that for uh, Detroit residents and community organizations. Uh, we did a fantastic kickoff for which the mayor was able to lead that effort. In addition to that, um, we've also done our own local emergency broadband benefit campaign. And currently right now that has us sitting third in the country amongst big cities of, of um, internet signups through that program. And so our operation that we painstakingly 
um, yet rewardingly built last year is now coming to fruition as we're able to lean on a network of community partners uh, who are actually getting the work done in a fantastic way. So us connecting residents, uh, I'm not gonna say it's easy, but it's significantly easier here because we put in that work to build those relationships and now it's paying off in a, in a, in a fantastic way for both our city objectives as well as our residents who are enjoying some of the things that we've been able to uh, create. That's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about the emergency broadband benefit. Uh, I think I got that correct. Um, and could you explain, I, that might be something new for the majority of our audience since Detroit's in the top three of cities uh, uh, using that program. Could you explain a little bit about what that program is? Um, and then I want to talk to you a little bit deeper because I understand there's some discussions in the legislature about making that even a permanent subsidy. So why don't we start with what is the emergency broadband benefit? Yeah, the emergency broadband benefit, uh, that is a, essentially a, a monthly subsidy for which uh, device, and there's a device allocation of $100 in a one-time voucher, as well as a $50 a month discount on one's internet bill for qualifying residents. And the original program kicked off uh, May, mid-May, and it was $3.2 billion that was allocated for that program. Now, that's, that's nationally. That's not just for Detroit. That's nationally. And, uh, you know, there were some challenges uh, with the program. I've definitely talked to the FCC at length. Uh, I have to commend Commissioner Rosenworcel uh, and, and her staff for being very responsive to our concerns. Uh, I did call them out uh, at one of our community meetings and say that the FCC didn't put any money in for community engagement. And they said, no, we fought for that. It just got you know nixed in the actual process, but we understand and overstand really the value of community engagement. And so, you know, we've been working obviously with the FCC on providing feedback for making that sign up process easier. Because again, if you're a Detroit resident with, um, let's say a child in Detroit public schools, you qualify for this program. If you've experienced a significant loss of income, if you're eligible and or receiving any state or federal aid, you qualify for this program. So a lot of Americans qualify for this program, uh, but the thing that seems to be the most difficult is one, just awareness. A lot of people do not know about this program. Uh, in addition to them not knowing about the program, the sign-up process isn't easy. Uh, it's a two-part sign-up process uh, and residents don't actually receive the money directly. Neither do the cities. All the money went to the internet providers. And so the internet providers are the ones who are holding that. And so it's not something that, again, from a process standpoint, you can imagine, it's not that you or I could take our $50 a month subsidy and say, hey, I wanna go here and do this for six months it's more so I need to find, I need to be verified that I indeed do qualify for this program. Now we need to find a participating, participating provider. And then off of that, now I need to go through this process of, of getting you know, vetted for this program. Now I can enroll and take advantage of it. It's not the most seamless process, but it's working. We're signing up people. Locally, we stood up our own local call center because we didn't want people to be on hold nationally. Uh, so Detroiters are running this call center, helping Detroiters. We have a community organization network where we're signing people up there in person. And then in addition to that, um, you know, we've actually done radio ads and even filmed a TV commercial um, uh, all about that ad. And a lot of people have been, been able to say, hey, I've learned about this emergency broadband benefit based on that commercial. So we're, we're, we're tapping into a lot of different um, aspects to make sure that our residents are engaged and aware of this program and taking advantage of it. Yeah, you know, and it seems, yeah, as you said, across the country, this is something that it sounds like a number of people would qualify, especially given the last year. Um, and so hopefully this uh, will also help get the word out about that. So one of the things that we had talked about, though, a year ago was the importance of sustainability. 
Um, and so, as you said, 3.2 billion with a B has been allocated to this for right now, but there is some talk in the, in Congress, I'm guessing, to make this a permanent subsidy. And is there any information you could provide us? I know that's not your area of expertise, but if there's anything you know about that. <laughs> well, well, it's it definitely became my, my area of expertise because we just have to always just, you know, look at what's happening and making sure that Detroit, as well as cities like Detroit, are well represented on these discussions. I think there's a lot of people who have a lot of great intentions at heart, but at the end of the day, they might not necessarily be aware of that local nuance. And so I do know that currently in the infrastructure package right now, that yeah, there is being money that's being allocated and there's serious consideration for creating a permanent subsidy. Now that subsidy price might change. We might not be dealing with the $50 a month subsidy. It could be a $30 a month subsidy. But at the end of the day, they are looking at a permanent subsidy uh, for the uh, aforementioned qualified participants that I named, because this is what we know to be true. Whether we are in Detroit and Cleveland, Philly, Baltimore, Miami, or wherever, residents who are living in poverty are going to, they're least likely to have access to the internet. They're least likely to have a computer, least likely to even have high-speed internet. And so at this point, we all know this. And so a permanent subsidy is our only path forward on bridging this iteration of the digital divide, one that is exacerbated by poverty. So I'm glad to see that this administration is actually looking at the correlation between internet access and all those barriers, um, social barriers that are making internet access unobtainable and they have a commitment to rectifying those. That's refreshing to see and that is definitely an anomaly. You do not see that level of nuance being used at that level, trickling down and actually being useful at the local level. Well, and when we talked last year as well, I think you mentioned a statistic, and I think I have this right, that it's about 70% of Detroit's school children live in homes that did not have wired broadband. And we talked a little bit about, you know, it's not enough just that you have internet access, but that consistent and persistent connection is really what's important. Um, and at the time, I think you had just started working with a number of corporations and nonprofits and some philanthropic entities to try and move the needle on that. So how, how are those partnerships going? Are you finding more people receptive to that conversation? It sounds a little bit from what you just shared that this is being recognized at least in Detroit as a problem to which everyone can contribute to the solution. Oh, 100%. Uh, so when I look at Connect the Room 3, and that's the name of our collective um, initiative, and I would refer to it as an operation, but some folks say it's an initiative. Uh, but when you look at the core members, City of Detroit, United Way for Southeast Michigan, Microsoft, and the Rocket Community Fund, um, who obviously you know works with, with Quicken Loans. And through that partnership, all of us recognize that we have a specific role, a specific audience that we're able to essentially impact. And so off of that, we've created a structure. Um, we facilitated a community election. We have five different committees who are working on uh, digital equity throughout the city. In addition to that, we have a board. That board is a very, very powerful underground entity that I cannot overstate their value and their guidance and their wisdom enough. It's fantastic to see it's about 17 different organizations and it's a mix of funders, consulting orgs, uh, agencies. I'm not gonna name any of these because when I name one, I'm gonna forget the rest of them. Um, healthcare providers, banks, any way that the digital divide manifests, whether it's through online banking, through healthcare and equity, or through distance learning and educational inequity, we have an entity that can correspond to that. And so it allows us to be significantly smarter with our resource and programmatic development. On the student piece, uh, you know, we're not 
we're, we're not in the position to, I would say, rob Peter to pay Paul. And historically, we have been. And what I'm saying is that we're not. It's because right now, thanks to Rosenworcel's leadership, again, the Emergency Connectivity Fund is a thing. And that is a uh, fund that the FCC created. It's about $7 billion uh, to um, essentially close the homework gap. And so that Emergency Connectivity Fund is for school-aged children throughout places like Detroit and honestly throughout the country where there's a $400 device allocation there for schools and libraries to apply to ensure that their patrons and their students have the appropriate computer they need and the appropriate internet that they need. And so through that, uh, I think that through our, our efforts last year, and I know by the time of this interview, we had already um, completed our first phase of getting every single public school student internet access and a computer. Now, what was missing out of that bunch was the charter kids, was the private school students, the out of district school students. Those are the, we still had to become whole. And what we're looking at with this current iteration of funding by the FCC that closes next Thursday is if we can get an application that's out there that can cover that remaining gap, we then set really great with our remaining um, American Rescue Plan dollars that we can use on, um, I would say, more intangible things such as technical support um, or standing up marketing and community engagement strategies to make sure people are taking advantage of our offerings. And so, again, last year, we took an incredible first stride at getting to where we needed to be but our work wasn't done. And I'm just thankful that we can be aligned with some of the federal leadership that we're seeing to get us to that 100% closure rate on school-aged children in Detroit not having um, a, an appropriate computer or appropriate internet connectivity. Right, and it sounds like, so by you referencing next Thursday, that's Thursday, August 12th, um, yeah. which is actually the day this 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 broadcast will air. So- Oh, wow, beautiful. Um, <laughs> people will be learning about it on the day it closes. So hopefully everyone who needs to know about it already does know about it. Um, a year ago, we also talked about data being a roadblock. And as a result, because, and we talked about how there's a two year time lag for the data set that most people are, most cities are using um, to work on their plans um, and also the granularity of that. And then similarly with reliance on the broadband companies, the ISPs that um, if they serve one home, in a, in a census tractor and a zip yeah. code, they get to claim that they serve the zip code and so that you are also not necessarily getting a complete picture. And you had said that one of your particular pillars was that you wanted to uh, step up the data collection efforts and really establish a data trust. And your hope was to, or your goal really was to have that stood up at least by the end of last year, by the end of 2020. So, and I know this is an ongoing effort because the data always has to be refreshed, yeah. But give us give us an update on where that stands and, and how how that that effort went. So the, the effort is, is going really well. So what we have in Detroit, Microsoft sits on our board as well. I cannot <laughs> I cannot overstate enough. Um, there's there's a particular individual within Microsoft his name is Warren Flood. He's the smartest person I've ever met, um, hands down. Uh, and he's actually been leading point on a lot of our data work here locally. Um, thankfully, he was on the, when Microsoft Cities was a thing, uh, they're no longer a thing anymore, but yet he's in Detroit still, so we could take advantage of that. Um, you know, his love for data has really transformed the way that we've been thinking about this. And so last year, yeah, we had to stand up what was referring to as a base file. And that base file was essentially us collecting as much data as we could think from as many different sources as possible, so that way we could have one repository of data. So that includes the American Community Survey, that includes any other surveying that we wanna do, that includes um, any type of speed testing we wanna do, 
we now have that base file built. Now what we are um, looking at doing is leveraging additional survey data and creating our own surveys because we need to be able to answer the question, are we winning? Um, and what does winning look like? In addition to that, as we're looking at all of our American Rescue Plan implementations, as well as the federal government investing big, what I fear is happening when cities are not paying attention to the data and they're only relying on the American Community Survey. The American Community Survey is a five-year rolling average. And so even all of our interventions last year aren't actually going to be quantified within the American Community Survey because it's a rolling average. They're going to judge us based on things that, you know, when we had no interventions and it's going to look like our massive interventions were just nominal. And so this is something where as we are not only standing, now that we have this data trust stood up, we need to be making sure that we're working really, really transparent and we're empowering everyone in the ecosystem to be collecting the data that we need for us to then be able to answer our own question. Because a lot of cities are now starting and stopping with the American Community Survey, that older data. What we're saying is, no, 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 no. You can start there, but you don't stop there. You just look at that and say, that's one data set amongst an infinite amount. I'm not going to give a number because I don't want us, I want us to get so precise. And so we're still getting precise. But that being said, we have the city, uh, our, our own open data team working with us. We have an incredible um, community organization uh, who's been doing this work for about 12 years in Detroit by the name of Data Driven Detroit, who acts as a data broker and a trust broker. They're in, they're in on this. They, they've been actually housing the, the base file. Obviously, Microsoft's leading this. We've been working with the University of Michigan Institute for Data Science on this. Um, it's just been a number of partners because we all fundamentally understand the value of data, but not just snapshot data today. We understand the value of longitudinal data. I can say that this intervention that we implemented in 2021, longitudinally over this three-year period, these are the, the, the various positive effects. And so without that longitudinal data, we're then going to be spinning our wheels again and then trying to guess what workforce participation looks like as a result of people getting computers when we can know definitively. So then with these seeds being planted, God forbid there's another pandemic or God forbid there's something else where we're going to need to really double down on our digital infrastructure. I don't want any Democrats or Republican lawmakers saying, no, 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 it's, it's unsustainable. We gave so much money in 2021 and 2022 and there's no quantifiable results. We want to be able to say, no, these are the quantifiable results. So therefore, investing in a, broad, a broadband subsidy gives you X. Investing in devices gives you Y. That's what we want to answer. And we're, and we're actually kind of on, I believe, on the digital equity cutting edge of that. And we need more cities thinking like that. And so I've already been talking to a group of cities. I've been convening some cities. We've been thinking through this together. But it can't just be um, us looked at in, in an anomaly capacity. This has to be the norm. And so we're definitely focusing on that. This has been a um, very enlightening experience, this data process. And I think that it's hard for me to... <laughs> have something that we're never going to be complete on. We're never going to have enough data. And I have to be okay with that. Um, but thus far, the momentum that we've seen, the trust that's being built, the way that the community stakeholders are getting involved and the way that they will get involved, um, it's very refreshing to see. And I think it's very empowering, not just in Detroit, but from a political process in Washington. This is a conversation I feel as if we have had a lot over the course of our programming year. Um, it's sort of twofold. One, that the idea of justice or equity needs to come from the community that's impacted first and foremost, because that they, it can't be a top-down decision. It has to be, this is what the community says, justice means for me or equity means to me um, in a collective voice. And then separately, or I guess actually relatedly, how important those partnerships are, that it's, you know, it's 
you, you, no one entity, no one person can advance the ball in almost any of these areas. It really has to be that collective effort um, to really drive towards whatever that version of success looks like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something where my work, when it, when it first started, um, there was a choice that, was, that, that I could have made. And it was like, connect three on three and everything that we've done through that, we could have internalized that and said, no, 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 this is the city's effort. If y'all want to do something like that, like you play by our terms. And a lot of cities did that. And they're not necessarily horribly wrong for doing that. But the problem with that approach, when you do something like that, it automatically puts people at a distance. And so what Connect Through and Three is, no, this is a shared thing. This is just as much mine as it is, as it is Microsoft's, as it is United Ways, as it is Quicken Loans. Like it's just as much as all of ours. And so we don't move forward without partnership because this is the most befuddling, interesting thing about the digital divide. It does not exist in a way where cities could even bridge it, even if they had all the resources in the world. We wouldn't be able to, because this is the thing. Fundamentally, even if we had our own broadband network for which everyone thinks that's going to solve it, that's going to help. That's, a, that's another tool in the tool belt, but it doesn't solve it. It addresses it better. And so if we had even our own internet network, we would still have a digital divide. If we had our own community stakeholder network of all just city employees knocking on every single door, we would still have a digital divide. Because at the end of the day, the digital divide is something that's so nuanced and so complex that it's going to take every single person, whether it is you're an organization that only serves one person, who cares? It's going to take all of us. So it's better for us to be focusing externally instead of us always trying to say, no, this is my, this is the city's. Y'all find your own. That is so anti to the work that will never scale and that will never get us the results that we want. And so I'm thankful that our efforts at the very beginning we're really focusing on building that partnership structure and it's paying off. We're seeing the way that a city that in Detroit, where most people are saying, well, they don't have this, they don't have that. They're the way that they're ran. I don't like this and that. And the media doesn't really do us any favors there. But at the end of the day, what they can't argue with is results. And at, at this point, our model is scaling. We're attracting net new resources into our ecosystem and we're getting the job done. And I think that that is something where the only thing I can think of that, uh, the reason why we're having success there is because of our partners. Without partnership, none of the stuff would have scaled to the degree that it is. And it would not, we would not be at the table being able to talk with this base in our voice about our efforts if our partners weren't there backing us up and emboldening us to do more. Well, and this also seems like a conversation that I know, obviously, when we spoke last year, to my knowledge, you were the only director of digital inclusion in the country at the time. And I think that is still the case. Um, Not anymore. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Not anymore. Okay. I, I, I had to give out a, a shout out to um, uh, Jason um, Herbedek out in Baltimore. Baltimore has hired a director of digital equity and inclusion. And it is just phenomenal and wonderful to see. Uh, other cities have now reached out and said, hey, we're in an election year right now. But post-election, we're getting our own director of digital inclusion too. And what I'm seeing is like a rift now, and it's a good rift. You have certain people who have a lot of broadband coordinators. And I'm like, okay, that's not, not a bad position. Um, I wouldn't trust that, that person. I don't think that they've been entrusted with enough power to steward the ecosystem accordingly, but I think that that's a good start. And so I'm seeing cities really prioritize this role, but I think the next step is cities giving this role that ample breathing room, that jurisdiction, that power to manifest what the ecosystem knows that it needs. And so it's great to see other cities leaning in, but I can say with total confidence, 
Baltimore has a director of digital equity and inclusion, and it's just beautiful to see the way that this work is being replicated and scaled across varying markets. Well, that's fantastic. And it sounds as if the state of Michigan is also sort of going this direction as well. So in June, they created the Office of High-Speed Internet. And I am curious as to how your work in Detroit interacts with that office. Oh, I mean, it, it directly interacts with that. I mean, this is a great thing. Uh, obviously, the work that we're doing in Detroit has reached nat national heights, and we're, we're thankful for that. Um, and that flows through our state. And so we have um, some phenomenal state leadership within our governor and our lieutenant governor who have just been um, strong advocates for our work. I remember our very first Digital Inclusion Summit uh, in, in 2019. Uh, our lieutenant, our lieutenant governor spoke there. And I mean, he's, he's always kind of had like this desire and passion, not only for Detroit, but for digital inclusion. And so I know that this was a long time coming, a lot of planning that they put into that. But the fact that a lot of our work has been modeled at the state level, they're picking what's replicable. What, what can we think about? You know, as we look at our Empowering Digital Detroit campaign and how we uh, sustainably reuse e electronic waste, that's, that, that's a state policy waiting to happen. Uh, the same thing goes for uh, as we look at our emergency broadband benefit campaign. That's a state campaign waiting to happen right now. Um, you know, we're not doing too hot within Michigan at the state level on EBB enro enrollments. And so as we look at that broadband benefit, we look at how Ohio is just doing an incredible job on it. Um, and I'm not you know, saying that because I'm from Ohio originally. I'm just saying that they're doing a really good job on signups right now. That's something where I'm like, wow, we now can do this, this, this lesson sharing with our state. I think this is how this should go. And so right now within the infrastructure bill, the Digital Equity Act uh, has been included in that bill. That bill gives money for states to actually be able to say, hey, we can carve out dollars out of this specifically to us creating our own state digital equity um, um, office as well as state digital equity operation within the state. But in addition to that, doing competitive grants that are then going to go to local government. And so what we can do in both scenarios is we can say, hey, we stood up a digital equity operation. We know best practices. In addition to that, we could be on the receiving end of some of these um, other grants that's going to make our American Rescue Plan implementations that much better, that much more um, um, complementary with the state's efforts. So I think that in the inception of that office, we have a paper trail of working with them. We're thankful for their leadership. Again, that Connecting Seniors uh, initiative I mentioned at the beginning of our, our call, that, that came from the state. And so this is something where like, we've been working together on that. And so to, to see them create that office, we're completely behind that. They did, do, they did do the announcement of the creation of that office in Detroit as well. And so we've been aligned there. And then just moving forward, we know that we're going to be aligned just simply because of um, the way legislation is allowing and encouraging, quite frankly, states and localities to work together. Then, so you've mentioned the American Rescue Plan Act a few times. So want to talk a little bit about that because there's been a fair amount of press actually about how some of Detroit's thoughts on how they're gonna use this money, especially in the digital inclusion or digital equity space. Um, we talked last year and we talked a little bit today as well about the importance of sustainability. So sustainability though, as well. And so are there, in my mind, this is sort of, um, it might be actually a double-edged sword. So there is certainly an influx of money, but then how the cities or municipalities or state decide to use the money is, is you know, the devil in the details kind of, kind of uh, scenario here. So um, could you tell us a little bit about, at least from the digital equity inclusion um, side of, of the coin, where 
where the ARPA plans are intended. Obviously, none, I don't believe any municipalities actually received their funds yet. So, um, and then what are you watching from a sustainability perspective with regard to that? Yeah, so I would say the sustainability piece is like the crux for digital inclusion and quite frankly, any type of social economic oriented work. And so like for us, uh, I know that we're, we, we received for digital equity specifically about $45 million, um, which is a beautiful legendary allocation. I've talked to other cities who are receiving about five to 10 million. And so like, I, I recognize with that 45, what that means, that that's beautiful. That's not even talking about matching philanthropy. That's not even talking about other things that are actually in the infrastructure bill. So it's like, that's just us alone. And so I think that where we're headed, our buckets we've already named internet access for Detroiters, devices for Detroiters and tech support for Detroiters. And so out of that, that's going to manifest in a lot of our operational stuff that's already been built out where we can say, hey, we already have a, an emergency broadband benefit call center that we're running. That has one number that Detroiters can call, 313-241-7618. Um, that is one number that they can call. And we said, well, if there's already a number there, why wouldn't we just invest in that call center model? So then it's press one for internet, press two for computers, press three for tech support. So it's okay. So it's like standing up, not even standing up. It's enhancing existing infrastructure that we already have. In addition, if we already have a low cost tech support refurbisher in Detroit that we already did fundraising before our fund, well, how do we scale that? And so I think that that's something where a lot of our dollars are, quite frankly, we're being very strategic in that we're seeing what's happening. You hear me mention that FCC's emergency connectivity fund. So it's like, okay, well, if they're covering students, well, then I don't necessarily need to do that. And we're still going to facilitate that. Uh, you know, that that's just, we're not going to leave that money on the table. So it's like, okay, students are being covered. Um, in addition, if the emergency broadband benefit is giving internet access discount, if not free internet to Detroiters, okay, I might not have to subsidize these costs. And they're talking about a permanent subsidy. That seems pretty sustainable to me. And so now it's like, okay, what are these investments really going to be for? And I think that's looking at our, our communities that are most hardest to reach on a technology level. And those are our seniors and our residents with disabilities. And so that's where like a lot of our money will manifest and the provisioning of appropriate devices for those populations. In addition to that, the appropriate level of tech support that's needed for those folks, as well as looking at the way that internet access can manifest. Quite frankly, right now within the state of Michigan, we have the Michigan Telecommunications Act that is not as empowering from a municipal broadband infrastructure standpoint. It actually restricts us in a number of ways for us to be able to actually even support infrastructure build out for community. But that being said, that doesn't mean we can't get creative here. And so um, I think that what we're going to be doing and our thinking is going to have to change on, we might not necessarily be able to invest in wired broadband from a residential standpoint tomorrow. Okay, that's fair. But what we can start looking at is, well, can we look at Wi-Fi? Can we begin? I mean, this might be the conversation around citywide Wi-Fi. And someone would easily say, well, citywide Wi-Fi is not sustainable. Well, it's not sustainable in the way that if you look at us paying for it in perpetuity, but where it is sustainable is if we look at a lot of our community organizations across the city and we could essentially um, deploy infrastructure and not necessarily pay that internet cost. They could pay that internet cost, but we would just be essentially paying the deployment team, the network monitoring team. And so we're, we're, we're thinking about sustainability. We're not just looking at the sexiest object and just saying, okay, we're going to do that. We're saying, okay, 
what works, what's actually going to move the needle, and what is actually cheap to this issue. If I know that's cheap to this issue is that out of poverty, in addition to poverty, there's a larger awareness issue. So how do we foster a sense of awareness? This is where we're really looking at these Wi-Fi networks to serve as landing pages. So people are aware of what's going on. We already have a network of neighborhood technology hubs in the city of Detroit. So I don't have to stand them up anymore. We have those things. And so with the neighborhood technology hubs being stood up, with these existing subsidies already there, we are really looking at connecting our most vulnerable residents to these services and not being afraid of the price that it's going to take to do that. And I don't even mean from a um, million dollar price tag. I mean, from the time that we're going to spend doing that. And so I think that that's where we're prioritizing a lot of our um, areas within those aforementioned buckets of internet access, tech support and devices. Before we get to the lightning round, I have one question because what I hear you talking about is that a lot of the infrastructure exists in Detroit in some fashion. And yes, there are augmentations that are necessary, but you all have been working on the digital divide for more than a decade at this point. Um, and so for perhaps smaller cities or cities who, who aren't where you are, who basically need to stand all this up, is how would you recommend they get started? Like what, what is a good starting point? Is it they need to do some sort of data survey first and figure out what the actual needs are? Are there some basics that every community should have? I'm just curious, just from your experience with this, is there sort of a template of, this is how you get this started if you haven't done anything really up to this point? Uh, yes. And so this, there, there's, there's ways that, and I guess we, if it was a specific city, but I'm just gonna go with small city A, and if, let's say we go small city B, small city B can be just like 50,000 people. If it's that small, then you have to do it as a regional entity. It would have to be regional. So for example, when I was working in Cleveland, Cleveland isn't 50,000 people, obviously, but it's, 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 not a, it's not at the same size as Detroit, like half the size. Um, for that city, the whole thing was always regional, was always Northeast Ohio, how to bridge Northeast Ohio's digital divide, how to work with the state on that. And so that's where I'm like, okay, if you're a smaller city, you need to get started and you're really that small, you need to be thinking regionally. Uh, if you try and do this at the scope and scale that we did in Detroit, it's going to be impossible to actually be sustainable there. Uh, there's just not enough funding allocated to support this work that way. Uh, but that being said, if you're a larger tier city, and I talk to a lot of, a lot of these cities, uh, I always say there's, there's three positions that you need to hire. And if it's not three positions, it's three functions that need to be core to the work that you do. So one person, you need someone who knows the landscape well. Um, in this capacity, I operate like that in Detroit as a director of digital inclusion and for Connect Through and Three, I'm the chief advocate. So I essentially brag about everything, um, all the work that our partners do, uh, as well as make sure that we're, we're being represented and aware of national opportunities and bringing those national opportunities to the local forefront. And so uh, you need to have that person who gets it. And oftentimes cities make the mistake of saying, well, that's, I need a broadband guru. It's like, no, no, you don't. Like you can subcontract that. Like you just need someone who understands this landscape and who can store it and set vision and set priorities. And if they need to call the school district, they can do that. You need that person. In addition, you need your operations person because as you have uh, someone like me running off and doing all this other stuff, you gotta make sure this stuff's getting done too. You gotta make sure the deadlines are being met. So that person, again, does not need to be a digital inclusion expert. They need to be an operational person who can set deadlines and go. You hear me talking about this emergency connectivity fund with the FCC. That's not, that money's not coming to the city. 
That money is going to charter schools and schools and libraries. What am I doing? I'm having those meetings with these folks, making sure that they're applying and having my operations person making sure they're meeting those deadlines and they're aware of what's happening. You need that person. The last piece or function is the data librarian. As you are doing every intervention, as the ecosystem is doing all these interventions, someone's going to have to be collecting that data. Cities historically have thought about data as if it's like internal. So we collect public safety data. That's internal to the city. We collect uh, water and sewage data internal to the city. Now we have open data portal so everyone can access it. But again, we're collecting data off of public um, um, sector agencies and organizations. What I'm saying is if we're talking about community organizations, if we're talking about residents, if we're talking about A through Z of every single person who's at the table in digital inclusion, you need to have that data librarian there who's able to collect that non-city data and then translate it and put it back into the city. And so that's where I'm like, that person allows you not only to collect in information and interventions, they're also feeding that chief advocate. So as that chief advocate's talking to funders, they're using that longitudinal data that can convey investment confidence. Because yeah, there's not enough, well, I could say historically there hasn't been enough money now, it's a different ball game, but historically there hasn't been enough money in this. So we've always had a hustle. And so that is your core operation that you're going to need to build anything, to sustain anything, and to actually envision and lead something in the future as it relates to what we deem uh, the future to be. And so I would say that any city that's getting started, if you're small, do this regionally, those three functions and roles do not change. If you're a big city, those three functions and roles do not change. Now you might not necessarily have the staffing, you might not be able to do this or that, but I'm gonna say this, they start, they, I, I originally started in the city as a fellow. I wasn't even a city employee. So I was doing all this as a fellow. So it's not impossible to do. You don't need to be inundated and baked deep into the cauldrons and, and untarred caverns of bureaucracy. You don't need to do all that. You can literally have someone here who is front-facing Department of One, because that was me for two years, um, figuring it out. And now all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting help now. Now I have a deputy who's like my operations person, you know, we have our data stuff. Like I'm speaking from experience here. It is possible to run this in a very small shop and have maximum impact. You just have to be very, very smart about it and very intentional about how you, uh, how you spend your time, what you focus on. Okay, well, thank you very much for your advice there. I always appreciate the practical side of things. All right, the lightning round. And I'm gonna modify the first question a little bit for you. So the first question usually is, what progress do you hope to see in the next year? But I also am curious if there are particular things you're planning on focusing on in the next year, because those seem to go hand in hand for me. And as the pandemic hopefully becomes less dire, um, you know, sort of getting back to, okay, now we're not in kind of emergency response mode, we're moving back to this is how we plan to move forward. So what progress are you looking for? What are your focus for the upcoming year? We got we to be halfway there. What I mean by halfway there, we said um, last year, we want to put in place by 2024, the means for all Detroit residents, businesses, stakeholders, community groups have access to the appropriate devices, internet connectivity and technical support for improved learning, employment and well-being. That is our mission. And so 2022, we should be halfway there. And so what halfway there looks like, <laughs> that means that if 50 people don't have a computer right now, then 25 won't have a computer next year. Obviously, I want them to be 100%, but we're being practical here and we're setting goals and we're sticking to them. Um, and so next year, we're halfway there. And I think that as the pandemic um, changes and continues to change the way that we work and the way that we operate and the way that we envision our future, uh, I could see us next year being at the, at the point where we're shifting from digital inclusion to digital empowerment. And what I mean by that, most people are looking at digital inclusion as the end all be all. 
And what I'm saying is like, no, 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 no. Digital inclusion is a starting line. So many people again are looking as if, man, if we could just be digitally included. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's the given. That's the expectation. There shouldn't be a single city or society that we're essentially saying, well, one day we're going to get you connected. I feel ashamed that we're not all connected already. And so it's like, no, digital inclusion is the starting point. We just need to get to the starting line. Digital empowerment is where we need to be. And some of them might say, well, what is digital empowerment? It's now we have everybody connected. Now what are we doing with these people now that they're connected? How are we taking people from being content consumers to content creators? How are we taking people from um, always in the, in the perpetual state of looking for jobs and now being digital entrepreneurs? I think that that's where we really need to zero in on and we need to be focusing on that significantly more. So we can't lose sight of zero to one because that's a quantum leap for a lot of us. There's so much nuance between zero and one here that we can't just start sprinting here because then we start over-innovating and developing things that aren't useful for any of us. But no, zero to one, one to two is where we want to be. And that is digital empowerment. And after two, I don't know what it is, but I don't need to know because we still are, are, are focusing on our decimals between zero and one. And so again, if we're looking at next year, that's us being halfway there. That's the future. And the future looks like digital empowerment from us and transitioning from digital inclusion to digital empowerment. So then what gives you hope that progress will be made? I think that I'm seeing much more coordination among cities and amongst the federal government uh, in ways I haven't seen before. I had to give a, an immense shout out to Next Century Cities. Uh, Francello Chilo has been an incredible leader uh, convening cities as well as a national league of cities. Uh, I can't overstate them enough. And as well as my peer cities, there are so many cities I can just name them. Like, Oh, I love them. Oh, they're doing great. Oh, and the way that these States are stepping up, it's fantastic. We have never seen a time Not, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, but we've never seen a time in history where the federal government, the state government, the counties and the local municipalities have been all aligned in digital inclusion. This has never happened. You've had historically, you know, some certain interventions such as, you know, the, the, the B-top projects in the early 2000s or 2010s. Sure, that was something that was, it was, it was something to marvel at, but this level is insane. And so what I'm getting hope on is the fact that we are now seeing that constellational alignment that so many of us have been dying for and it's finally happening here. And I think that what we're getting off of that is folks who are, who are responsive to our ecosystem in ways that we've never seen before. I mean, look, I called out the FCC. I called out Commissioner Rosenworcel. And then no joke, within weeks, we have all of their executive staff on a call with all of our community partners talking about what our issues were. That doesn't happen. <laughs> that, is, that is so rare. And so I'm having hope on we are now building responsive ecosystems and we ourselves are in these ecosystems and folks are listening, folks want to get it right. Uh, the president's done a really great job of setting this as a priority. And I, I actually feel confident following someone's lead there. And that has not been the case historically on digital equity and, and broadband affair issues. And that's changing and I have hope on this. Okay, then who else is doing good work to make progress? You've listed a number, you've mentioned a number of people, but is there anybody else you would like to say, pay attention to what these people are doing? I would say pay close attention to uh, Bruce Clark in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's on a uh, fantastic job. And the way the Knight Foundation is leaning in there is, is historic, it's beautiful, it's legendary. Uh, it, it's, it's just great to see, uh, as well as their, their, their state office, their state broadband office, North Carolina state broadband office is, is great. Uh, in addition to that, I'm not just saying this because I'm from there, but Cleveland, Ohio is actually quietly making a lot of incredible, incredible moves. Most recently, one of their um, local internet providers that they've been able to stand up uh, by the name of Digital C, 
they received just about $20 million from private capital. Um, and that's, 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 that's incredible. This is before this federal funding is kicking in. So they already have 20 million from, from private. And that is, again, creating another internet provider there. So what are they giving their community? They're giving them options. How do you begin eradicating poverty? By giving people options, the options that they can afford that are tailored for them. And so this is why I'm, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed to see the progress that's being had there. I already mentioned Baltimore and them hiring a director of digital inclusion. Definitely keep your eye on Baltimore. Um, they're, they're doing a lot of great work, but um, as it stands right now, those are the three cities I'm gonna mention. And any other city that's mentioning, that's watching this, I apologize, because I probably know you, and I'm sorry that I didn't mention you. <laughs> All right. And then the final question is for our audience who wants to educate themselves more on these issues or more on how they can get involved. Anybody you would suggest that they be reading or following as a thinker or any podcast or webcast or anything that you'd recommend? Okay. So I, I'd already mentioned Francello Chillo through Next Century Cities. I'm just going to reiterate like everything that she does. Yes. She's spot on every single time. Follow her. Larry Irving, uh, he actually coined the term the digital divide uh, when he was working during the Clinton administration. Please follow him. Um, anything that Dr. Nicole Turner Lee does, um, she is incredible. She's always releasing like, she just released a book recently. Um, I, again, anyone who wants to, if, if, if you're following these people that I just named, like you're gonna be dangerous enough. Um, we, need a, we need a better bench. In addition, I, I recently um, stumbled upon the Urban Complex, their podcast. Um, Again, it's just 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 two, two guys who are honestly doing some really cool work and featuring some some pretty cool speakers there. So I would say those folks, and I know I'm missing a lot of other ones. So again, I apologize for the people that I'm following. I just forgot to say your name. Well, and no worries. If you think of them later, we'll just add them to the text of this. So not a problem sure. at all. So I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in today for our, I guess, sort of first hybrid tea. So re-airing uh, Joshua's chat with me last year and then our update now and a couple of upcoming program notes so you can mark your calendars. Um, we will be having our main fundraiser for the year, the Fashion Fantasia in Paradise, which is a fashion show benefit on Friday, August 20th and Saturday, August 21st. You can participate either in person or virtually. And every ticket purchase gives you an entry into our raffle where the grand prize is a trip to Puerto Vallarta. Airfare and lodging for four days, three nights are included. So Joshua, if you'd like to join us virtually, please do. Um, and there will also be silent auction items and uh, just a really a, a good time. So please join us on August 20th or August 21st. And then in two weeks, we'll have another tea. So join us on Thursday, August 26th at 3 p.m. for tea. And Joshua, thank you again so much for catching us up on all the great work that you've been doing. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, as soon as you said Puerto Vallarta, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm gonna be attending virtually. <laughs> well, wonderful, thank you so much. Absolutely, see you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice 
and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.